Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals, hosted by Walter Kim, NAE President. Today's conversation is with Dr. Francis Collins, Director of the National Institutes of Health. The topic, a Christian perspective on the COVID vaccines. Today's conversation is brought to you by Youth Theology Network. YTN is your resource for helping high school students understand if God is calling them to ministry. Their new online hub is where you can connect with programs across the country, direct students to a program that meets their needs, read inspiring stories, and find vocational discernment resources. With YTN, you can help students take their next faithful step. For more information, please visit youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. And now, let's join in. I'm Walter Kim, here with Dr. Francis Collins, Director of the National Institutes of Health. He was appointed the 16th Director of the NIH by President Barack Obama and confirmed by the Senate. Dr. Collins is one of the few high-profile Obama appointees to continue serving in President Trump's administration. And in this role, Dr. Collins oversees the work of the largest supporter of biomedical research in the world. He is a physician geneticist noted for his landmark discoveries of disease genes and his leadership of the International Human Genome Project, which culminated in the completion of the finished sequence of the Human DNA Instruction Book. And of course, even more foundationally, Dr. Collins is a deeply committed Christian. He wrote the popular book, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief, uh, from which I and a myriad of others have benefited greatly. When I was serving as a pastor at Park Street Church, I appreciated the sermon that Dr. Collins gave on faith and science. Uh, And then all of us were surprised and blessed when after the sermon, Dr. Collins picked up an electric guitar and helped to lead worship. He is the whole package. Dr. Collins, uh, I'm grateful that you've taken time today to have this conversation. Uh, it's great to be with you, Walter. Yes, I remember that uh, event at Park Street Church. It's burned into my mind. It was just a fantastic gathering of believers and thinkers and worshipers. Uh, yeah, that was something else. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of worship and belief, why don't we begin by having you share a bit about how you came to Christ and how you came to realize your calling as a scientist. Did that happen around the same time? Did one precede the other? And how did they relate to one another? People might guess that I must have been somebody who was raised in a home where Christianity was considered fundamental to everything. And that's not my story. I was raised in a home where faith was not denigrated, but it wasn't considered very important. So by the time I got to college, I wasn't really sure I believed in anything. I slipped gradually from agnosticism into something pretty close to atheism by the time I was a graduate student in chemistry. And then I decided to go to medical school. Yeah, I know this is not a linear pathway. And uh, along the way, came to realize that I had never really considered the serious questions about God's existence, about life and death. But when you're sitting at the bedside of good North Carolina people who are facing the end of their lives, and one of them asked me, doctor, what do you believe? I realized I had no answers to that. And then began at age 27, a sort of deep investigation into why do believers believe? And is there any rationality behind this? Or do you just basically have to check your brain at the door? 
And what I discovered was that actually atheism was the least rational of all the choices, the assertion of a universal negative, which scientists aren't supposed to do, and that the evidence uh, for Jesus Christ and his life on the earth and his death and resurrection was extremely compelling. And I thought that was just sort of a myth. Now, on top of that, I began to realize that science actually had a lot of pointers uh, to the potential of a creator God that I'd never really thought about. Like, you know, why is there something instead of nothing? And why does mathematics work so beautifully to describe matter and energy? Seems like a mind is behind this. And why is the universe so fine-tuned to make it possible for complexity and something interesting had to have happened? And then what about morality? And where does this idea of good and evil come from? And why am I called to be good when it isn't all that clear why natural processes would necessarily have resulted in that outcome? So all of that meshed together into a, a stirring set of two years of conversations, at the end of which I felt absolutely compelled uh, to give my life to Jesus. And that's what I did. And I've been a Christian then, now for more than 40 years, and finding it actually wonderful to be a person of faith and a person of science. They have different ways of approaching different questions, but I find them wonderfully complementary and harmonious. Clearly you have thought a lot about the integration of faith and science and of course of health. And um, we have a moment in time where those issues uh, converge in, in matters of life and death. How do you think Christians should approach this health crisis? Well, I think Christians down through the centuries have been faced with the challenge of what is our calling in times of trouble. Uh, we can call upon God to help us, and we do, and we should, but sometimes God calls us uh, to be part of the solution, and that's happened down through the centuries as well. And at times of plague, and this is not the first one, nor is, will it be the last, Christians have had a tradition of not running away from the challenge, but running toward it, saying, what can I do? And I think that's what we should be doing now. It's different because usually when you're a Christian and you're called to run towards something, that means you kind of gather together. And here's a circumstance where a gathering together happens to be the wrong thing to do because of the danger of contagion. And so we're called actually to act, to love our neighbors in other ways than what we're used to, helping the elderly couple down the street who can't really get out to buy their groceries uh, to go and do that for them and leave a bag at their doorstep, for instance, or volunteering at the food bank with so many people struggling uh, with the economic consequences of COVID-19, or simply being a listening ear uh, for people who have lost a loved one, who are ill, who are isolated, all of those things we can do. What we can't do is what we love to do, which is to gather together without putting everybody at risk. And again, Christians are called in our love for our neighbors uh, to consider all of those things I'm thinking today, I'm reading my uh, Bible this morning and reading in 1 John, and I ran across uh, this, these uh, verses in 1 John chapter 3. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Okay, that's a pretty good calling to Christians. But the next verse, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth actions and in truth. That's what I think Christians are now called to do, and many are doing so. But it has been a confusing time for a lot of people trying to figure out, how do I 
take those words and, and make them into something that I can do that's faithful to God, but that recognizes the reality of what we know through knowledge God has given us to learn through science about this particular COVID-19 and how can I do what needs to be done to keep other people safe and not be sort of the next super spreader <laughs> despite my good intentions of being a Christian reaching out to those who are in need. It, this is tricky, but we can work our way through this. We are people who have dealt with complexities before we can sort this out, but we do have to focus on both the action and the truth. What is the truth? What do we really know and how do we act on it? It really does seem like you're connecting uh, acts like wearing a mask or socially distancing with our public with witness, with, with a commitment to truth, with commitment to loving our neighbor. And I appreciate that perspective. Yes. Um, we, we now have something new introduced uh, into the equation. Uh, this is a tremendous moment as vaccines are starting to roll out, as people are getting shots. Congratulations to you, to your team, uh, to those that you have encouraged uh, for all the work to get us to this point. Thank you. Uh, and I know you have extensive understanding of how, how these vaccines work. Uh, could you give us a basic understanding of what vaccines are actually doing in our bodies? Sure. And Walter, I'm glad you mentioned that in the meantime, we still have to focus on all those things uh, to prevent this disease from spreading even more widely, wearing the masks, avoiding the close connections, keeping that physical distance, certainly not gathering indoors, which is where the greatest risks happen. I know people are tired of hearing that. I know they're tired of living that way, but especially now here in January of 2021, which might be the worst month yet, we just can't be part of putting other people at risk. None of us know if we might be that asymptomatic but highly infected individual whose mere presence in a closed room might be the start of something really regrettable and egregious for those around us. So again, we got to stick with that. I know we're tired of it. The virus is not tired of us. It's been having a pretty good party and the party is going really well for it right now because a lot of people have not taken this seriously. Christians of all people ought to be able to look at the facts and say, I'm going to do the right thing to save others' lives. That mask that I need to wear, that's not a political statement. That's not an invasion of my freedom. That is basically a life-saving medical device. And just as I would run for the defibrillator if I saw somebody had a cardiac arrest and I knew what to do with it, I'm going to put on my mask. So please, people, especially now, let's try to do everything we can to adhere to those simple but life-saving measures. So sorry, I had to make that particular advocacy moment happen, but let me go on to vaccines. It is amazing, Walter, that here we are just exactly a year, give or take a few days, from when we first learned of the actual nature of this virus in Wuhan, China, and learned it was a coronavirus, and saw the actual letters of its instruction book, its genome. And that began us activity in just the space of a day of beginning to design the first vaccine. This was done at the NIH and our vaccine research center became a partnership with the company called Moderna and is now one of the vaccines, which has now been approved by the FDA for emergency use and which I myself have now received the first dose on December 22nd. And I'll get my second dose 28 days later because it's a two dose regimen. It's a very elegant approach, and it's the same approach that the Pfizer vaccine also utilized, and it can be done very quickly because what you're trying to do is to convince the human body 
to make some antibodies against uh, this particular coronavirus that you've seen pictures of. It's a sphere, but it has these spike proteins on the surface, which is the first thing the immune system sees if this gets into your system. So the idea is let's get the immune system to make antibodies against that spike protein ahead of time. So that if the virus comes waltzing by, those antibodies will be ready to go, oh, no, you don't. So how do you do that safely? We don't want to give people the whole virus and cause them to get sick. So none of the vaccines you're hearing about are actually made up of the entire virus. No, they're just various ways of making that spike protein, which by itself can't do anything except prime the immune system. The Moderna approach is that basically the vaccine is the coding information for that spike protein in the molecule called RNA. And if anybody remembers biology 101, you have DNA and then that is transcribed to RNA and then that's translated to protein. So we're picking that middle step there, the RNA, and then that gets injected into your shoulder and your body goes, oh, that's RNA. And it makes the spike protein and the immune system goes, oh, I'm not gonna let that go by, makes those antibodies. And we have now shown in a dramatic way with 30,000 volunteers in that Moderna trial and a similar number in the Pfizer trial, that this is 95% effective in preventing somebody from getting sick if they're gonna be out in the community and get exposed to SARS-CoV-2. I didn't dream that it would be that good. I think most of us were like, oh, I sure hope it's at least maybe 60, 70% effective, but 95. So this is a really good story. This is like science doing something that nobody really thought could be done in a year and having it turn out with a vaccine that is both safe and effective and is now going into people's arms. And that's great. We now have the tools to end this epidemic. We have a challenge about getting it distributed to all those people in the country and in the world who want access to this and also dealing with the resistance that a fair number of people seem to feel about maybe they aren't ready uh, to trust this yet. And that's something also I think we as Christians have to take seriously and certainly Christians are not immune from that vaccine hesitancy, but how do we deal with that? Well, it means really looking at the facts and being willing to set aside whatever you heard uh, in the latest social media post and look at the evidence for whether this is something that you and your family would like to take part in in order to save a lot of lives. And you might guess for me as the scientist who's been engaged in this, I'm gonna say this is a really good deal, but I don't expect people to believe that without looking at the data. And the data is what ought to drive our decisions and not somebody else's opinion that you heard on the street or some crazy posting somewhere in Facebook, and there's plenty of those out there too. We are people who are capable of rational thought. We should be using it right now, even as we're giving thanks uh, to God Almighty that we are in a position to be able to say this pandemic could be behind us. When we had our uh, vaccination um, ceremony at NIH where Tony Fauci uh, got immunized, and obviously he's somebody that a lot of people have been listening to, uh, as did a bunch of our healthcare providers who take care of patients at NIH, with COVID uh, and myself, I had to finish that off by reading something from the Bible. And I chose Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. We should be giving thanks that we are here at this point because 
boy, there were so many ways this could have gone wrong. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, what a powerful witness that is to give God glory uh, and yet to also simultaneously acknowledge the natural giftings that come from the Lord that enable us to um, glorify him. Uh, Dr. Collins, you've given us a lot to process. Uh, and so I want to break some of this down and ask uh, a few more questions. You raised up the issue of distribution. And uh, I, I want to couple that with manufacturing. So we have this amazing warp speed vaccine that's been created, but will it be manufactured at the level sufficient for our needs? And then will it be distributed and how so? Yeah. Those are incredibly challenging issues. And for the first time, those were being thought about as far back as last May uh, when warp speed was initiated. Recognize that in the past, manufacturing of a vaccine has not really been thought about until the vaccine has been tested and found whether it's safe and effective. For the first time, manufacturing was actually initiated and money put on the table to pay for it even before we knew whether the vaccines were going to work with the expectation now with six of these different vaccines currently being tested, that at least some of these would fail and you just have to throw those doses out. But you didn't wanna find yourself with a successful vaccine and then the need to wait for many months to build a factory and try to produce uh, millions of doses. So the day after the FDA and, uh, approved for emergency use, uh, the Pfizer vaccine, shipments were heading out. And the day after, which was a week later, they did the same for Moderna, shipments were heading out to the states. There's not enough doses for everybody in the US on day one. Uh, there were in the neighborhood of 20 million doses, but to get to 330 million people, especially because these are two dose uh, protocols, takes a lot more manufacturing, which is now ramping up in a big way. We have the capacity though uh, to get there uh, by May or June, or maybe even sooner if we get another vaccine approved, like for instance, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is already finished enrolling for phase three and is now gonna be looking in just the next month to see how good was that one. And I hope it's really good because that's a one dose vaccine. So. We are gonna have the opportunity here in the United States and also a lot of these doses need to go to other parts of the world that are perhaps even more in trouble than we are, although we're in a lot of trouble. So we have to think about our neighbors in, in other countries, but we are on a pretty good track uh, to have enough manufacturing capacity to get there uh, by let's say June. Now, the question is, how do you take those doses that have been manufactured and actually get them injected into people's shoulders? Uh, and that has turned out to be challenging in the first two or three weeks of this. Although I do hope people will be a little patient and recognize this is kind of being done in the midst of a holiday season. And also on the backs of a lot of healthcare providers who are already really stretched trying to take care of a lot of sick people. And every state is doing this a little differently and some with more success than others. So take a breath, people. Let's just give a little time for the distribution parts uh, to be worked out. I think that's gonna look better in a couple of weeks than it did right at the beginning. And certainly everybody's now got their attention on the issues of distribution because they're on the front page of every newspaper. We're gonna get there. It just takes a little time to sort out something as complicated as this.
Dr. Collins, you've mentioned in a couple of instances the international rollout, and there has been some concern uh, about um, the high level of technology that's required for the double doses and what does this mean in other parts of the world? And there are many of our listeners that are involved with agencies or denominations that have um, a global footprint. And so they're not only concerned about churches or institutions uh, in America, neighborhoods in America, but they're concerned about their global work. Um, can you speak to some of the challenges that relate to um, this global rollout? It's a very important question. Um, the World Health Organization has a project called COVAX to try to see how this kind of distribution could be clearly and carefully thought through, especially for lower and middle income countries will not have their own vaccine manufacturing capabilities and will need to depend on the rest of the world's production. Uh, while we're not officially part of COVAX, uh, science and medicine has always been an international effort. So we're actually quite deeply engaged in making sure we're doing our part at NIH uh, to nurture that kind of global responsibility. It will be challenging, uh, particularly for the Pfizer vaccine, which requires this very low temperature uh, cold chain, uh, minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit, which is not available in a lot of places. The other vaccines are not quite as demanding. Moderna just requires a regular freezer like you have in your kitchen. And the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that I mentioned a minute ago, both has the advantage of being a single dose and also really not requiring anything other than a regular refrigerator as far as maintaining the doses for reasonable periods of time. So that one also turns out to be relatively easy to manufacture in very large numbers of doses, hundreds of millions. So I'm counting on that being part of our hope for global distribution because it has all the right properties to do that. But even without that, I think the determination is to make sure we're all citizens of the world. We can't turn our backs on other countries that are suffering just like we are and make sure that we're both taking care as best we can with our own high-risk individuals, but thinking about all of those brothers and sisters across the planet uh, who are going to depend on, on the better off countries uh, to help them out too. Mm. So we've been talking about things that uh, deal with scientifically complex uh, issues and logistically complex issues in terms of manufacturing and distribution, uh, our global connections. Now I wanna dive a little bit into an area of moral complexity with these vaccines. Um, so some have been concerned about the ethics of the vaccines, particularly as they relate to materials that may have been derived from abortions. What should Christians know about cell lines? Yeah, I do think this is an important issue and I get asked about it a lot uh, by Christians who are obviously very concerned about whether something is being done here that is inconsistent with a pro-life position. Let me first say, no current fetal tissue is being used for any of these vaccines. The only connection is from cell lines that were derived in the 1960s and the 1970s. Those cell lines were derived from elective abortion in Scandinavia at a time where that was legal. And from uh, the results of the abortion, cell lines were derived, a couple of them, that have turned out to be very useful in the biotechnology industry for various purposes. 
And so they've traditionally been put to work. Now, again, this is 40, 50 years away uh, from the single event uh, where these fetal cell lines became possible. The cell lines are being utilized for a couple of the vaccines as part of the manufacturing process because you will need cells in order to grow that particular kind of adenovirus vector. So for instance, the AstraZeneca vaccine and, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine utilize those cell lines for their production. The mRNA vaccines, the ones that I talked about a little bit ago, Pfizer and Moderna, do not need cell lines. Those basically, those are vaccines that are made of synthetic RNA and some lipids to wrap it up in an envelope. Uh, so there is no use of the cell lines in the production package. If people want to really push on that, those cell lines are used to check out whether a particular vaccine seems to be safe and effective in a lab experiment. So there have been uses of the cell lines to validate the vaccine, but it's not involved in the production for Pfizer and Moderna. The Catholic Church has looked at this very carefully. Focus on the family has looked at this very carefully. I think the general sense is that pro-life Christians can be in a position of acceptable ethics and morality by taking advantage of these vaccines if in fact that is going to potentially save lives. Given that these are cell lines derived decades ago, there is not a consideration there therefore that Christians are somehow being complicit in some evil action if they decide they want to utilize these vaccines for their family. Everybody needs to look at that issue for themselves, but that's kind of the background. Um, I think people should be fairly reassured though, because there's a lot of suggestion that somehow this is utilizing fresh fetal tissue right now. That is absolutely not the case and never will be. That's very helpful to um, describe what is and is not uh, being done. Uh, you know, another area of, I'd say, a bit moral complexity is um, this notion that, uh, well, let's let some other people take the vaccine first. Hmm. I'm going to let herd immunity develop through other people. I, I, but I myself will kind of opt out of this uh, process of getting a vaccine. How do you respond to the kind of argument that says, well, you know, socially, there'll be other people that I'm sure could rise to uh, take the vaccine and we'll get to herd immunity eventually, but um, I could just avoid whatever concerns I might have being uh, triggered by these vaccines um, and just let the rest of society uh, work toward this herd immunity. I have certainly heard that argument. Now recognize herd immunity probably will require 80 to 85% of the population being immune. And that is a pretty high number. And so those who decide to let other people get us there are essentially kind of asking everybody else to take a risk if there is a risk here and everything has some risk so that they can benefit from it. That doesn't sound like a particularly compelling Christian position. Aren't we supposed to be the people who are looking out for others who are trying to put ourselves in the love your neighbor position and doing what we need to do, not just for ourselves, but also for everybody else. So I would think Christians would be uncomfortable espousing that particular approach and, and just expecting that everybody else around them is gonna take care of them. Doesn't seem quite like the kind of attitude that Jesus calls us to. That's interesting you raised earlier that the, the ethic of love that Christ would call us to would be not together, but to recognize the loving thing to do. 
uh, is to create some distance to prevent the spread. Yeah. And yet here's an instance where Christians could run towards something in an act of uh, courage in taking this vaccine. I totally agree. And Christians also can run towards taking part in clinical trials, and many of them have. We wouldn't know these vaccines work if we hadn't had more than 100,000 people basically say, I want to volunteer uh, and I want to be tested in this vaccine to see if it works. And I'm going to let everybody measure my responses and see whether it works. That is also a wonderful donation uh, of your willingness uh, to be part of the solution. And many Christians have done that. And we are not done with that. There is another vaccine called Novavax that just started enrolling about a week ago. So if people really want to continue to build our repertory here of vaccines, uh, go to the web and look up Combat COVID. The full web address is combatcovid.hhs.gov. But just Combat COVID, if you Google it, will get you to a site which will tell you about what trials are available for vaccines. Also, if you happen to have just gotten a positive diagnosis, what therapeutic trials are available to see what might actually help people stay out of the hospital. And also, if you've recovered from COVID-19, could you donate plasma, convalescent plasma that might help somebody else? Because you've got antibodies that could be really useful. So combat COVID, Christians, this seems like a good opportunity for mm -hmm. all of us uh, to try to see what we can do to help run towards it. Yeah, thank you. So we've been talking about some uh, presently complicated issues with uh, ethics. I, I wanna point to the past that has present implications. Uh, Pew Research Center, as well as other research, has indicated some concerns within the Black community about this vaccine. And this points to some painful medical history in our country. Uh, how would you address this issue? It's a very serious issue, Walter. Uh, African Americans have not been well treated historically uh, in our country in terms of their health care. It is still not even, there are inequities everywhere. And in research, uh, the famous Tuskegee experiment, uh, where black men who were uh, infected with syphilis were observed uh, for decades, even after we knew an effective treatment and they were not offered that treatment, that has left a deep sense uh, of distrust in that community, even though that was a couple, three decades away and President Clinton apologized for it very publicly in the late 1990s but that has long uh, memories attached to it. So we have a lot of work to do, I think, uh, to convince the African-American and the Hispanic communities you know, that this is really in their best intentions. And that requires, I think, voices not like mine, uh, a white guy who works for the government, uh, but for leaders in those communities who look at the evidence and say, okay, there were some bad things that happened in the past, but this time, this is actually something that's gonna be good for us. Let's not pass it up. It helped a lot that the vaccine trials in, enrolled large numbers of African-Americans and Hispanics. And that was a challenge. And I personally spent a lot of the time trying to make sure uh, that that enrollment happened. So people can look at those trials and say, oh, there's people like me in that trial. And they got 94% efficacy. Maybe that's something I wanna do. But it is going to be a heavy lift, I think, because of this uh, historical sense uh, that this hasn't always turned out well uh, for minority communities. And the distrust still lingers and has to be best addressed uh, by the people 
who live in those communities, who have uh, the credibility, uh, and we're doing everything we can to reach out in that regard, particularly to physicians who are themselves uh, from minority communities and who can speak with credibility that, frankly, people like me may not have. You've talked about the need for multiple community leadership. Um, let's talk about pastors and church leaders in particular. Um, what roles should they be playing with regard to this vaccine? Well, I know pastors oftentimes feel uneasy about getting into a circumstance that involves medicine and public health, but I would hope this would be a circumstance uh, where that particular opportunity would be embraced and not actually run away from. 340,000 people have died by the end of December and January promises to be a very tough month. We have more than 20 million cases in the United States of COVID-19 and we're not done with this. If pastors feel this responsibility uh, to shepherd their flocks, the flocks are in trouble. And I would think this is a moment uh, for pastors to look at all the evidence, uh, to prayerfully consider uh, what their roles might be, and to see whether it's possible to exhort their parishioners uh, to think about this from a Christian perspective and make choices that are going to save lives and not put people at risk. And that may not be popular, because I know in a lot of churches, there's a lot of anger about what's happened, about the prohibitions against gathering in large numbers in closed spaces, about the requirement to wear masks, and this, for every pastor, may therefore be a little bit of a third rail they don't want to go to, but it's too important. Uh, this is too serious. This is too historic, the worst pandemic in 102 years. And if the church doesn't step in and try to do the right thing, who's going to? How's that message going to come across to most people who otherwise really may not be hearing from a credible source about actions they can take today to save lives? So pastors, yeah, I would really appeal to you embrace this opportunity, run with it. There's lots of materials that are available through CDC that can help you with the facts and arm yourself with the facts and a lot of prayer, and you can actually save lives. So what keeps you going as a Christian? Is there a certain scripture you've alluded to using Psalm 103 uh, in that celebration at the NIH? Are there other pieces of scripture that you've found encouraging you would like to leave with us, or maybe a historical example of faith that uh, is of an encouragement to you? You know, um, I'm reading a Bible every morning, trying to arm myself for whatever the day is going to bring. And I find I'm in the Psalms a lot. <laughs> and whatever stress, uh, stress you're going through, the Psalms will have a place <laughs> that you can resonate with because Certainly David had those experiences. And I keep coming back to Psalm 46. Uh, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Interesting sort of opening lines there. It does not say God will prevent us from ever having trouble. No, it doesn't say that. It said God is an ever-present help in trouble. Well, we are in trouble. The whole world is in trouble. Our nation is in trouble uh, with the terrible events that have happened, the lives lost, the economic disasters that have fallen on many families. Uh, but God is our ever-present help. God is with us, our refuge and our strength. 
that is, I think, for me, the most important scripture of the last 12 months. And uh, I aim to cling to it until we can get a little further along. And we're going to. I mean, that's the other thing. God gives us in this circumstance the opportunity to hope, but that hope needs to be attached uh, to the kinds of gifts that God has given us to address a challenge of this sort. Hope brings action when it's going to be effective, and God has made that possible. Yeah, Hebrews uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 10 and 11, for God is not unjust. He will not overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. Uh, we are trying to serve the saints, which is all of the people who need us. And God will honor that. He's not going to expect us to stand back and say, okay, God, you got to take care of it. He's calling on us. Uh, we are the servants. Uh, we are the people through which uh, God is acting in order to try to bring this terrible tragedy to a close. And we got to do everything we can to live up to that. Those are really compelling words that you draw us to so appreciative of this conversation. Our guest today on today's conversation has been Dr. Francis Collins, Director of the National Institutes of Health. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, a very special thanks to you, Dr. Collins. Oh, thank you, Walter. And thank you to all of you who are out there laboring in the fields, uh, trying to do everything you can uh, to help people who are suffering greatly because of this crisis. Uh, your work is the most important thing that the church can do right now. Please don't lose heart. Uh, we got to double down every bit of effort we can uh, to get through this, and we are going to get through this. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.